2: The Slate Political Gabfest is brought to you by The Great Courses, engaging video and audio lectures taught by top professors. Courses like Customs of the World, using cultural intelligence to adapt wherever you are. Get 80% off the original price for a limited time when you visit thegreatcourses.com gabfest. And buy stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer, and have your postal carrier pick up the packages. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get up to $55 in free postage when you visit stamps.com and use the promo code GabFest. Hello and welcome to Slate Political GabFest. For August 22nd, 2014, the Why Isn't Everyone? Rioting edition. I'm David Plotz, the editor-at-large of Slate in Washington, D.C. Today, after nearly two weeks of protests, Ferguson, Missouri remains tense. The shooting of Michael Brown remains mysterious. And the president remains basically silent. What lasting impact will Ferguson have on the rest of the nation? Then the horrifying execution of American journalist James Foley by ISIS... And then Los Angeles considers a voting lottery, cast a ballot in a municipal election, get the chance to win $50,000 plus we'll have cocktail chatter and a special Slate Plus segment for Slate Plus members, the tangled tale of Rick Perry and the drunk prosecutor. You can go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to sign up for the GabFest where you'll get extra segments, or you can email me directly at David.plots at slate.com to get all the best slate plus at the lowest possible rate slate senior editor Emily Bazelon joins me today in New York hello Emily
3: hey David welcome back
2: thank you John Dickerson remains MIA Um, we are dragging lakes and uh, sending the bloodhounds out looking for him if you have seen John please let us know please tweet at us do not approach him he could be dangerous but do send us a tweet, and, uh, and we will get law enforcement on it right now. Do you have any idea where he is, Emily? Maine. Really? So Maine. So people in Maine, look out for John Dickerson. Be on the alert for John Dickerson. He's about six feet tall, blonde, beautiful hair, handsome, and with a voice that could melt silver. So, Emily, grabbed someone off the street to sub for John today. Who did you find, Emily?
3: Mike Pesca. He was even in the office as opposed to off the street. <laughs> Lucky for us.
2: Wait, Mike Pesca, host of The Gist with Mike
1: Pesca? Slate's That Mike Pesca the very
2: same. Oh, my God.
1: As you know, I want for a platform to express my thoughts, so I thought the political gab fest would be necessary.
2: Are you by, Are you going to become like Limbaugh, where you have to talk on the air for four hours a day?
1: Yeah. Are you, I, I was drawn to myself. You, we'll you, just ask you one you question the and
3: then listen for the next X minutes.
1: For his retirement, they should just you know, keep the studio, the EIB studios, and just convince him he has a show. How would he know otherwise? As long as he's on the cover of Cigar Aficionado once every two years, that's, that's all he needs. Is Limbaugh retiring? I'm just saying at some time he will. Don't, I know it's scary to think about, David, but sometime he'll have to. Now, I just wanted to go back and say that if we are the flowchart of dredging the lakes and, and using the bloodhounds to search should go in that order because if we threw the bloodhounds into the lakes without dredging them first, that would be bad for the bloodhounds.
2: Bloodhounds can swim.
1: They probably would then,
2: but they probably would be not so good at hunting after that or or searching. Yeah, you'd ruin them
1: for their bloodhoundial purposes. That is correct.
2: Uh, We have super exciting announcement. You guys probably didn't even know it's coming. There are two great live podcasts coming up on the West Coast. The first one is Slate's inaugural crossover show. The Superfest, Superfest West. It's going to be in San Francisco on October 5th. Tickets are going to be on sale next week at slate.com/slash Superfest West. And it's going to be a show where the Political GabFest and the Culture GabFest face off, will team up and face off. It will be it will be both competitive and cooperative. We're going to have a joint show with us and Metcalf, Dana Stevens, Julia Turner. It's going to be amazing. And Pesca, did you know that you are
1: going to be the host of that show? That's what my airline tickets say. <laughs> Someone bought
3: you your airline tickets? Where do I work? Why doesn't anyone do any such thing ever for me?
1: No. My airline tickets say just take off the damn shoes and stop complaining. <laughs> anyway, that show is going
2: to be October 5th. Tickets on sale next week at San Francisco. It's going to be amazing. And there's also a second West Coast show, Los Angeles, October 8th, uh, slate.com slash LA fest site.com slash fest and that is going to be a culture fest, a live culture fest show. I heard them talking about their special guests. They have a really fancy special guest in the works. If that person comes through, it would be amazing. You should come to both, drive up and down the California coast and come to see both shows. Ferguson, Missouri remains at the center of national attention. This week, the nightly protests that have dominated the news have simmered down quite a bit. Eric Holder, the attorney general, has traveled to St. Louis to talk about the crisis there. There has been much discussion, but no real news about whether prosecutors are going to charge Darren Wilson, the police officer who allegedly shot and killed Michael Brown. I left for my largely off-the-grid vacation on August 9th when Brown was shot and returned on August 20th as things simmered down. So I have missed most, most of this national convulsion. So I'm going to need you guys to explain it for me. So, Emily, just on the legal question, what are the issues or what are the steps that we need to think about before Wilson is or is not charged? What needs to happen?
3: The prosecutor has decided that he's going to take this case to a grand jury and try to get them to bring an indictment. And the issue is whether Officer Wilson used excessive force and whether this was an unjustified homicide or a justified one. And that will turn on the very minute by minute specifics of what happened when the police stopped Michael Brown and his friend Dorian Johnson And what witnesses reported, what the forensic evidence shows, how the cops' stories about the incident hold up, it's all very much going to turn on the precise circumstance of these multiple shootings and what Wilson and Brown were each doing as these awful, lethal minutes unfolded.
2: And as a betting woman, do you have any sense about how strong this case might or may not be? Or do we just not know enough yet?
3: I think it's hard to tell. I mean, if you go by some of the witness accounts, it seems like this was an unjustified homicide. In particular, Dorian Johnson makes it sound like Brown was standing there with his hands up when the last shot was fired. I'm not sure we know whether that last shot was the one that killed him. We know that he could have survived all but the shot to his head. But that account, which was the account that initially, you know, zoomed through the media and the internet, makes Wilson sound at fault. However, there are other witnesses who say they witnessed some kind of tussle at the side of this patrol car. The cop says that Brown hit him in the face. He was treated at the hospital. And then there are witnesses who say that in when the last shot was fired, when Brown was outside the car, that maybe he was, he was moving toward Wilson and maybe his hands weren't up in the air. And so Wilson has to... In order order to have justified lethal force, Wilson has to have been fearing for his own life or the, trying to prevent the deaths or you know bodily harm of others. And so this question of what Brown was doing, how far away he was, how menacing or not his posture toward Wilson was at that moment, that seems like the, the crucial question.
1: And complicating this is who the prosecuting attorney is. Yes, This guy, uh, McCulloch, Robert McCulloch, whose father was a St. Louis cop, who was killed in the line of duty by actually an African-American assailant. And uh, his mother worked with uh, the police for years and years. But he's been the prosecuting attorney there for a long time, has been elected by the people, I think since the 90s. He also criticized Jay Nixon. So he's already stepped into this. The governor. Criticized the governor for essentially trying to tamp down some tensions. It seems like the kind of case to me. You tell me, Emily. But it seems like the kind of case to me that if there wasn't attention based on it, I could see that it would be viewed as a, you know, what they call a good shooting, a justified shooting. Because so few shootings are viewed as unjustified, actually, especially in uh, those jurisdictions. A
3: good shooting, viewed as a good shooting by the cops, you mean, and by the law enforcement?
1: Yeah, I would think, I don't know if an indictment would be returned, but it is so very rare to have a murder or a similar charge against a policeman who says, you know, I I feared for myself. was a tussle. He came at me. I mean, those set of facts alone, I sensed he was reaching for a gun. Those set of facts alone are usually enough to get a cop off on a murder charge.
3: Yeah, but maybe that isn't what should be the case. I mean, we do defer to police in these circumstances and essentially give them the benefit of the doubt. But the circumstances of this case really are putting a spotlight on whether we should be. And I know this is; these cases are different incidents. But it is not helpful to your argument, not that you're making it necessarily, but to the good shooting idea that the man who was killed in North St. Louis this week, his shooting, the police gave an account of that made it sound like a justified homicide. When you watch the video shot by a guy who was standing there on the street, I don't know about you. I didn't think it was justified at all. I was horrified. It it seemed like someone, the man who was shot someone who is either mentally ill or on drugs in like a – Split second. It takes f- the cops 15 seconds to open fire in this barrage of bullets from when they show up on the scene. And what this guy did was, you know, shoplift a couple of cans of soda and some other stuff from a store and then put the sodas down on the street in front of him. He's like kind of pacing in this weird way, but not he's not menacing any passersby. It's it's really upsetting. And, you know, the Brown shooting has its whole own set of circumstances. But I really question Why McCulloch is so insistent that he's trying. I mean, it's almost like a movie what's happening with him, right? He's like the super popular prosecutor. Why should he step aside? It's a huge case. Well, except he has the family history you just outlined. He's refused to prosecute cops in other shootings of unarmed black people. And the whole black community, essentially, in this part of the country is saying, please, we don't trust this guy. The only people sticking up for him, as far as I can hear so far, are white people like Senator Claire McCaskill. And so you just feel like if... This shooting was justified and there is no indictment and it's McCulloch at the center of it. It's not going to matter what the facts are because people are not going to trust it.
2: Well, But doesn't it disturb you that there's the same urging towards prosecution? What if he is indicted? What if there is a charge brought? Can we trust that? There's been, well, a, there's been this public fury that has been a, an enormous pressure to indict this, this cop.
3: Yeah, I mean, so these kinds of moments make me incredibly nervous because it's as if the whole weight of racial history and injustice in America is coming down to whether this officer goes to prison or not and and is tried and found guilty. Like, all of that. And maybe the facts of this case don't actually bear that weight. But whatever the answer to that question is, I wish that the process was one that everyone was going to be able to feel had all of the things that would make them feel like it's fair. In other words, a prosecutor who seems neutral, who doesn't have this kind of history. And it's not that I hold that history against McCulloch exactly. It's more just that I feel like it's hugely unfortunate that his ego is so big that he can't realize that what matters most here is for the country and particularly the blacks of St. Louis and the region to have as much help trusting the process as, as is manageable. And his presence is not helpful for that.
1: Well, isn't it possible to get an indictment in one jurisdiction and then have a change of venue? I mean, that's what happened with uh, some other high-profile Rodney King and Amadou Diallo.
3: Sure, but that's a later step in the legal process, right? I mean, this guy is the one who's leading the case. And so the indictment is in his hands, the decision about, well, I mean, change of venue, the defense attorneys could ask for too, I suppose. But, you know, he will still be at the center, right? Change of venue doesn't get you away from the prosecutor usually, except in a case like Trayvon Martin, where they actually did appoint a special prosecutor afterward. And Jay Nixon could do that, I guess.
2: Why do you guys think that the protests are simmering down? We've had almost two weeks of nightly protests. They're still going on, but they are much muted. Is it just that people are worn out? There's nothing left to accomplish. The police tactics have gotten better. What is it?
1: Well, it seemed right away that the police tactics were wrong for two or three days and the visuals of uh, police and riot gear and heavily militarized police and the stuff that libertarians like Rand Paul criticized. And by the way, I'd be interested to hear if you thought that on the actual basis of his criticism, why have we militarized the police, if that's actually a good criticism, even though it totally fits in with uh, what we're seeing here. But so it seems like things were so mishandled. And when you, you know, hear the news conferences of the people who were in charge at first, and when you consider their decisions to, you know, release that videotape of Michael Brown, shoving the store clerk after he uh, allegedly, although it seems pretty clearly on that video, stole a few cigars. When you consider that, that the mindset of the people who are making decisions it just seems like there was nowhere to go but up then for a day or two they put the highway patrol in charge things seem to be a little better but it's not that easy and you know i could trot out all the mlk quotes about how a riot is you know the communication of the voiceless and it's also true the other cliches about a few bad apples or people trying to take advantage of a situation is also true so i mean i do think that you had Terrible police decisions in the beginning, inciting a spark, and then the spark smolders, you know, and can catch fire again and again, and eventually it has to die out. I think that the protesters, they're saying so many things, and in some ways by, like, looting stores, they're not saying anything productive. But I think, by and large, maybe the protesters are feeling that their voice at this point has been heard.
3: Well, and also there is this black peacekeeping informal force in Ferguson now that is standing between the protesters and the cops and they've diffused some moments that could have escalated.
2: I've been in riots and my, my overwhelming sense about not that, to say that what happened in Ferguson was riots. There was some element of riot and there was an element of protest and there was element of extremely peaceful protest and it's, it's all conflated. But it's really fun. Like protesting is fun. It's something that genuinely gives you a sense of power in the moment that you're doing it. and, and Right.
3: I, well, the crowd has this intense energy, yeah. right? Is that what you mean?
2: Yeah. And, and actually, what, what has struck me, again, being totally out of this and, and kind of coming back to it late is what's most surprising to me about what's happening in Ferguson is how little this is happening in America these days. You have a situation where there's inequality is at record levels. There's tremendous poverty. You have portions of cities that are just in terrible shape at the same time other, other people are getting rich and rich and rich. And I've always wondered why is it that we have a very pacific kind of culture? The best answer I could think of actually was that the technology, the tactics of control have gotten better than the tactics of protest. That's easier to stifle protests and discourage protests and control protests than it is to protest. And that's why we have had so little protesting of the sort that we're seeing in Ferguson, because it certainly seems like people ought to be angry enough to be in the streets. More than they have been.
3: I mean, you're leaving out Occupy, right? Which is the most protest filled political movement we've had in a while. And I think protesting over the long term is really hard. Protesting is sort of a response to crisis, it has urgency and a sense of emergency behind it. But when you get into the marathon of day after day, that's tough to maintain. People have jobs. People have other things to do. It you know, it's I think it's hard to keep it going.
1: I kinda of disagree with the premise. I think that uh there are, well, there are a number of reasons the bread and circuses argument, the uh use the media as a distraction, consistent form of oppression that leads to hopelessness. But you know, I live near the U.N., and there's a protest out there every day, and I think about France, and I know that in our constitution we have a right to assembly, but that right's not so often accommodated. So when police in the United States actively try to not allow for protests, then I think the uh, consequence is you're not going to get that many protests. The funny thing about protests— Wait, that's what you're agreeing with me, though. The police no, are he's act-
3: saying the reasons for it are different from the reasons you're giving, I yeah, think.
1: Yes, that's right. I think that people don't protest because they feel that it won't get them anywhere. But I've done a little research about this, and I think you know one of the smartest things that I've read about the Vietnam War is that the protests, I guess, in the popular imagination, this is uh, John Mullen at, at Ohio State, wrote a book turning on its head the idea that protests stopped the war, or even had any effect on the war. The war seemed to be... Correlate or popularity with the war seemed to entirely correlate with death toll and all protests did was allow for venting of frustration, but that's fine. That's legitimate. I just don't think that people think that that's the most efficient way to vent their frustration. I mean, it's really onerous, especially in this world where you could tweet something or like something and feel pretty good about yourself and maybe the stakes don't seem that dire or if they s- seem unbelievably dire then what's even the point of that you could retreat into you know some music of opposition or i mean there're plenty forms of outlets it seems like protesting is you know just about the least efficient way to go about it
2: but poverty has not been eased we have tremendous racism there's there's the sense of despair and hopelessness and Poor parts of America is as profound as it's ever been. The opportunities for if you are poor and minority in urban America are no greater than they were 20 years ago. And yet in the 60s, we had this – you know, 50s and 60s, we had a tremendous peaceful protest which led to then years of urban riots and urban protests and that carried forth until – the early mid-70s, and then we've basically been quiescent, except for, you know, know, spasms like the Rodney King riots since then. It's mysterious.
1: But if you're a poor, over-policed kid from the inner city, what evidence do you have that a protest is the way to go about addressing that? I mean, the people that protest, I think, are more kind of middle-class white people like the hippies and the Occupy Wall Street people.
3: Also, the, you know, protests of the 60s were about changing a law, right? Really clear goal, injustice, incredibly clear. Plus, they were about local, crazy, horrible enforcement of that law. So you had an urgent need in the place where you were protesting. Then in the 70s, you have the Vietnam War. That's its own kind of snowball. The kinds of problems you just outlined are enormous. They're also amorphous. And so unless there is a local expression of them or a local opportunity for people to express their feelings about it, it just doesn't happen as much. I also think, though, that you're making it sound like they never happen anymore in a way that's not true. It's just that they're not—first of all, you know, part of what happens is the media can sit—we can sit at our desks and just pull stuff off of Twitter as opposed to going out and talking to people on the street. And so social media protests and online petitions get a lot of attention, And are this other vehicle. And it takes something that truly seems like a a large number of people in a really galvanized way, like Ferguson, to kind of pull us out of our offices.
2: All right. Last question on this. There have been a spate. By spate, I mean I saw one guy on TV and then I read one op-ed. But I bet there are more. There's been a spate of cops telling people you really need to behave yourself around cops. Like the best advice that I as a cop can give you today is – When you're confronted by a police officer, be quiet, obedient non-confrontational.
3: I want to know what you thought about this, David, because in our previous conversations, you have been more a defender of the police than I.
2: i blocked myself into that corner, Emily. I know. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm in that squad car. I'm in the back of that squad car. uh, No, you're on the outside.
3: You're calling the police on other people who are in the squad car. So what did you think? I mean, did that seem like, yeah, realism to you?
2: Well, I think it seemed like really smart advice. But of course, you know, People confronting the cops generally are confronting the cops because they're high, stupid, reckless, hopped up on something, hopped up on their own machismo, really angry. And so it's probably hard advice to follow, but it seems like really sensible advice. But is it useful for cops to be telling people this?
3: Well, look, I mean, there are two ways to think about this. One is pre escalation, and one is after you think something unjust and wrong and misconduct has happened to you. You know, pre escalation. Yes, be polite to the police in the way that you do with every government official or every – like, assume people are trying to do their job. I mean – and I also think there's – as I've talked before, there's reason to fear the police. So, I mean, I absolutely tell my kids to be incredibly deferential and try to model that for them. I mean, it's the only time I ever use the words sir and ma'am is when I'm talking to the police. All of that said, the notion that if something unfair happens to you, you can't speak up and you're just supposed to, like, put your hands out to be cuffed, get led away, and then later on try to do something about that. I mean, I just find that incredibly upsetting that that's where we are. We're just supposed to take it and hope someone's taking, like, a Gonzo Citizen video to bear out our account later because – In the moment, the things that happen with the police, that's if you lose your chance to react in a way that is defending yourself or challenging them in the moment, then you usually lose the chance to do anything about it at all. And this is why a lot of why I just feel like if you can keep the police out of your ordinary interactions with people you should
1: and and this whole thing is like uh, let's hear from this the privates and corporals about what to do when we come and uh, you know turn over your village well what about the generals and the civilian commanders who dictate the strategy I didn't actually know the situation in those inner ring suburbs around st. Louis and that so many other cities are like this where the representation is overwhelmingly white even though the public is overwhelmingly black and another thing that's come to light is just Just how much they use stops and um, police harassment as a way of raising money. I was reading in— And
3: controlling people.
1: Yeah. But I was reading uh, in this from the Marginal Revolution blog, the Arc City Defenders write that despite Ferguson's relative poverty— Fines and court fees comprise the second largest source of revenue for the city, $2.6 million. In 2013, the Ferguson Municipal Court disposed of 24,000 warrants and 12,000 cases, or about three warrants per household. So when the police says, Yeah, don't get upset or acquiesce when we frisk you, don't get upset when we perhaps arrest you, you know, four or five levels up, someone is making a decision that's putting those police saying that in a bad position all right you guys have uh yeah you better you picked a
3: hard summer to defend every single move that law enforcement makes we won't we won't make you stand on that ground
1: david yeah you and patrick lynch the most full-throated defenders of police our society knows he's the uh he's the nypd fraternal order of police spokesman our
2: first sponsor this week is the great courses The desire to learn doesn't stop after college. That's the motivation behind The Great Courses, which offers engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors and experts. No tests at the end. Learn what you want to learn. You're not being held to account. And one course that we want to recommend is Customs of the World, Using Cultural Intelligence to Adapt Wherever You Are. It's Professor Livermore, who provides depth and insight into a wide range of cultural dynamics around the world valuable tools that help you interact and behave personally and professionally in various cultural settings and avoid costly misunderstandings. I remember this sensation I had in Japan when I was working in Japan for a little while of just the constant sense that of doing it wrong. It would be nice to avoid doing it wrong. So if you get the great courses Course and Customs of the World, you can get up to 80% off the original price on that course. And The Great Courses covers over 500 topics, history, science, photography, much more. And you can watch and listen at your convenience from anywhere with online downloads and streaming with The Great Courses apps or with DVDs and CDs. And again, there's no pressure of exams. And the special offer for Political Gabfest listeners, Customs of the World at 80% off the original price. But the 80% savings is available only for a limited time. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash gabfest. That's thegreatcourses.com slash gabfest. American journalist James Foley was executed this week by the ISIS kidnappers who had been holding him for more than two years. Foley was decapitated by his captors in a gruesome video that ISIS circulated It's uh, something I couldn't bring myself to watch and look at, although we'll talk about whether Mike and Emily did. His executioner, who seems to be British-born based on his accent, or at least British-raised, said Foley was being killed in retaliation for U.S. airstrikes. ISIS also threatened to murder another U.S. journalist it's holding hostage. So did you guys watch this video or look at these photos?
1: There's no way I was going to. I'm not squeamish. I just – why? who does it help to do that?
2: Right. Emily, you? Uh,
3: Yeah, I mean, I am squeamish, but I agree with Mike, and I also feel like I don't want to – I don't know if it's helping the people who did this to watch it, but it seems like it's buying into their – the way they framed the issue. I mean, look, you know, it also, I suppose, is important to witness the horror that they're perpetrating, but I, they put it out there for us to watch. I don't want to give them that.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty okay. I'm pretty clear that it is horrible. I don't need convincing. I'm not, you know, some arguer is going to say, you need to watch this to confront what they are. I know what ISIS is. I'm okay. They want me to watch it. I'm not going to watch it.
2: So the most interesting part of this horror, I think, comes to the, the big public policy question raised about whether to pay ransom. So Foley, there was a ransom demanded quietly, secretly by ISIS. The United States government and its uh, associated entities refused to pay it, refused to negotiate with him, with the captors. Whereas, as the New York Times reported brilliantly, hostages from European countries that have been held have been freed thanks to ransoms in the tens, even $100 million total paid by European nations. It's not clear to me whether it's paid by governments or private but paid by European entities to al-Qaeda, basically, that funding al-Qaeda and al-Qaeda affiliates like ISIS, which is sort of a – it's not exactly an al-Qaeda affiliate, but let's just say it is for the sake of this, are making money by taking hostages and holding them for ransom, but the U.S. will not pay ransom. So should the U.S. have paid? Should the U.S. be paying to free its citizens who are held by these murderers?
3: No, I mean it feels incredibly harsh in the moment because someone was just killed in a terrible way because of this policy, but I I find it honestly morally abhorrent what the Europeans and these other countries are doing because they are feeding the kidnapping and also because they are funding these groups that are doing other terrible things. I mean, their payments are the main source of revenue and it just seems like this incredibly dirty set of transactions, and it saves a few lives, but at what cost?
1: Well, what about private businesses? Should they be paying? Can't stop them from paying.
3: Well, sure. I mean, it's a different question. I guess you could say that they have a different obligation to their employees than governments have to citizens, and so if they want to pay as a private matter, that's on them, The problems still stand, though. You're increasing the incentive to kidnap and you're funding groups that go on to use your money for awful things that you just don't have to actually watch.
1: But if private businesses pay, then the stance of governments won't matter. I mean, if kidnappers know that uh, the people they kidnap represent a cash cow from someone, they're not going to be dissuaded because, you know, 30, 20, 35 percent of the potentially kidnapped won't have uh, people behind them who will pay. Right. Mike, do you
2: guys remember from the Time story? I don't remember. Is the are the European ransoms being paid by government or by? Yeah,
3: a lot of the money comes from governments. They yeah. get laundered through. You know, it's like a pretend humanitarian payment right. that goes to some middleman. But yes, they're but the coming source straight is not a the corporation. Government.
2: The source
1: is government.
3: They, I mean, right. I think both are happening. But I think there are certainly governments that are paying. Yes.
1: And private companies like media companies have insurance and sometimes their insurance pays. I've talked to David Rode about this, who was uh, the, when he worked for the New York Times, he was kidnapped. He was in Afghanistan. And, you know, he doesn't even come out by saying we should or we shouldn't. But the most important thing is that... Consistency and also let's do away with the fiction that we don't negotiate with terrorists that does that does nobody any good. Of course we do, and of course we should, and we should try not only to negotiate but do what we did, which is, you know, try to extract this guy. I mean it's a tough conundrum. I also would say that ISIS would definitely have engaged in kidnapping even if they didn't want any cash reward, and in fact they didn't accept any cash reward, because it entirely fits in with what they want to do. And what ISIS wants to do is to terrorize the United States, to send a message. You know, this is one of ISIS's worst weeks in the last months because they were bombed away from the dam, and they've been losing ground in uh, Syria. So that's why they uh, did the action and released the video now to try but to reestablish themselves. But they're unusual in
3: this way, right? I mean, this is part of why they got kicked out of Al Qaeda was that they have these brutal killings. They're that...
1: unusu- yeah, but they're unusually successful. Yeah, well, so but, but I think problem. that's a, but that's
2: a short term success, Mike. I don't think. In five years, we're going to be talking about ISIS as being this this tremendous entity. I mean, this, for one thing, it's very hard when, you are, when you're a terrorist organization, it's very hard to hold territory because people don't like you. They don't want to deal with you and they want to military get rid. It's hard to terrorize a population consistently over a significant period of time. The Taliban did it for a couple of years in Afghanistan, but weren't really able to hold to hold that kind of line for a very long time and when you are decapitating people and sending videos around the world there's probably some short burst of people feeling emboldened and and feeling like oh ISIS has got my back and what you know what brave jihadists they are but in the long run viciously murdering people on camera and Committing atrocities of the sort ISIS committing, it's not a long-term strategy, even for the people they're recruiting now. It burns itself out pretty quickly. I don't think ISIS is a long-term organization.
1: Well, what that argues for is what they want to do. This is why the Taliban didn't work. You know, you talk about the caliphate and you talk about you know an adherence to whatever 13th century principles, but then when you act, then when it actually comes to running a country, you got to run a water filtration plant, and your ideology isn't really good for that. So yeah, I don't think ISIS will ever be a great effective runner of any But if there is such a thing as sustainable long-term terrorist organizations, Hezbollah, Hamas, we see it, right? I think ISIS is totally positioned to be that because they're the richest terrorist organization the world has ever known because they have more military success on the battlefield than Al-Qaeda ever did and even than than Hamas did and Hezbollah, you know, in a smaller theater did all right, but what they're, what ISIS is doing with syria turkey and um and now yeah. iraq is is tremendous and it 's sticky and their media outreach is unprecedented they 're unprecedentedly sophisticated. All these groups have radio stations and engage in propaganda, but they 're so good at it so I think they'll be around. I don't know what they'll be doing. I talked to a couple experts yesterday. I said, are they going to be you know, bombing Kansas City in a year? One said maybe. One said probably not. But I think that they have stickiness and they'll be a headache for a long time.
2: I, I don't agree. I think the, the most successful long-term terrorist organizations we've seen are narco-terrorist organizations.
3: Because it, why? They because they making, have huge amounts of money. Revenue.
2: They have tons of money. And but, they, they, but then and they, that's because and they, and they their goal is also achievable. They, but it's
3: a different niche, right? I mean, these terrorist groups we're talking about, they are appealing to people who are super religious, super fundamentalist, and desperate and angry. And in that niche, I mean, ISIS is now winning the, you know, awful badass award.
2: Yes, they're winning it for the moment. But you know what? There are certainly some number of young, angry young men in the world Angry young Muslim men in the world who want to go and fight and oppose uh, the U.S. and oppose the, the Shiites, oppose whoever it is is oppressing you. But you can't sit around and commit atrocities against people and be horrible to people over a consistent period of time and and maintain your recruitment especially when you are going to be getting battered. These guys are in the the sights of every single other entity in this world, basically. The Syrian government doesn't like them. The Iranian government doesn't like them. The Iraqi government, such as it, doesn't like them. The United States doesn't like them. The Russians don't really like them. The Turks don't like them. These are not anybody's friends. And so they are going to be getting the crap beaten out of them left and right. I don't see how they – how they maintain, especially if they're mostly foreign fighters. Like they, have no, they will not have a natural like, base. The Taliban at least have a natural geographic base in Afghanistan where these are, they are fighters who come from these places. They are, come from these villages and they can stay there. Most, if these are foreign fighters being recruited out of London, they're going to be living in Iraq for the rest of
1: their life? Not really. Right, so the Taliban was what I was thinking of, and you're right, they're natural based, but the Taliban is a decades-on, I mean, going back to the Mujahideen, decades-on, ongoing organization. And, you know, compared to Al-Qaeda, I don't see why they can't be as potent as Al-Qaeda. They have more advantages than Al-Qaeda ever had, except surprise.
3: All right, we're going to come back in five years, and you guys can finish this discussion.
1: Maybe ISIS will turn into something else, but the, the amount of money that they have and, you know, the passion that's fueling them will somehow be existing in the world and still be a headache for, you know, people who don't believe in shooting anyone who's smiling? Well, the passion of angry young men is a
2: very powerful force. And it's been harnessed. The Taliban harnessed it. The the, the Mujahideen harnessed it in in Afghanistan 25 years ago. Al-Qaeda harnessed it. You know, the fighters in Chechnya harnessed it. It's hard to maintain that. Young men are not very good at organizing things. They're not very good at committing, staying part of things over a significant period of time. They want to have sex. They want to get married. Ultimately, they want to settle down. It, like, just is not a sustainable model for a long-term operation. I just...
3: Right. You try to hold out the flame for the next generation to come along, right? I mean, you're arguing that won't happen. I don't see how we can settle this. So
2: so what should the U.S. be doing about ISIS? Let's wrap with that.
1: I think bombing them when they're out in the field turned out to have been a good strategy. I think that ultimately they have to let... Iraq settle it for themselves. So, and this is why it's good that Maliki is out. You know, this is the Iraqis, or at least that faction of Iraqis that's been ruling the country's problem. And if they don't solve their own problem by beating back the fighters, then, you know, I'm not going to say they don't deserve to have a country, but there's no basis to say, yes, that's what Iraq should be, a country that can't defend itself, a country that, you know, can't turn away these, you know, totally radical Sunnis who don't have any real appeal besides anger. So, yeah, I think that it is another one of these world headaches. And so far, we're doing as best we can.
2: Should we be pushing the Europeans to stop
1: paying these ransoms? Well, again, I don't think that if... Uh, yes, that, we should. I, I don't think if that policy was in place, it would dissuade them from doing the kidnappings. It's been well, tactically a great triumph needs, for them.
3: Well, well, this in terms of ISIS, yes, because ISIS actually kills hostages for the sake of killing hostages and... Defying the U.S. But in terms of the worldwide situation of kidnappings, yes, it would help if people stopped paying ransoms and some people would die along the way, which would be terrible.
1: But that's like a herd immunity challenge. Yes. If you if realistically you know that 15% of people won't do it then don't even pursue the policy.
3: Right. Except that it may, you know, if so- kidnappers are being somewhat sophisticated, they would care about the nationality of who they were kidnapping. If you don't think the private companies are going to But come.
2: they do. Apparently they do.
3: Yeah, but, it, it, but, it, but when I talked to David
1: Rowe, he said that these guys are so ignorant and they don't they can't even distinguish between a journalist and a fighter and an American and a Canadian. That's what he said his kidnappers were like. I find it hard with American and Canadians, too. (laughs) Sometimes. (laughs) In
3: fact, Canadians are Americans.
1: (laughs) Ask them questions about kids in the hall, see how much they know.
2: Let's hear from our second sponsor. The Gap Fest is brought to you this week by Stamps.com. It's summer. You want to have as much free time as possible in these waning days of summer. So don't let going to the post office cut into that free time. Use Stamps.com instead. With stamps.com, you can print postage right from your desk. You won't have to go to the post office, find parking, and wait your turn there. Stamps.com turns your PC or Mac into your own personal post office. You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your computer and printer. You can print everything from stamps to shipping labels whenever you need it. Then you just hand it to your mail carrier. Stamps.com is convenient and easy to use, and you will never waste time going to the post office again. Right now, Use our promo code GABFEST for the special offer, no risk trial, and a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. What if you had a mayoral election and no one came? Turnout in the 2013 mayoral election in Los Angeles, a contested election, important election in a city facing major issues. It was only 23%. That's down from 37% in 2001. There are many reasons for this. There are boring candidates. The, the people competing were not the most scintillating of candidates. It was a pretty negative campaign. It was 59 degrees on election day, which that, and the chill may have kept Angelina's <laughs> away from the polls. It wasn't synchronized with state or federal balloting, so the city elections were held on their own special day, not associated with any other election. People had juice cleanses. They had auditions. It was August. They had surfing. They had to finish their screenplay. It was August.
3: I think it's amazing that anyone came in August to a boring election on a day when no one else was up for election. I mean, that is like you have to be a super nerd. You have to be me to go and vote in that election.
2: Well— so we can't all be Emily Bazelon. That's the, no. That is
3: that
1: is that is in fact... Fix one. Everyone be Emily Bazelon. I always feel work. guilty whenever
3: I don't vote for anything. But the truth is this election had everything against it. I mean, you can't hold a single office election in August and expect people to come. That's crazy.
2: So Los Angeles is talking about ways to improve its elections. And obviously, there's some easy answers like maybe synchronize it with federal balloting, maybe don't have it in August, maybe don't have your election in August, maybe um, have more interesting candidates. But one idea that there has been floated that is being considered is a lottery. And every person who voted in a Los Angeles municipal election would be entered into a lottery and could win prize of 25000 or $50,000. First of all, Emily, just as a on the legal question, is this a legal thing to do? It, I mean, okay. I guess
3: so, as l- but I don't understand this kind of paying voting proposal. At all. Why a lottery? Why a winner take all? So they're going to have like one fifty dollars prize and they really think that's going to get a lot of people out there. All that's going to get is them made a lot of fun of. There are a lot oh, I easier. Think
2: what do you mean? That's a totally wh- that's a much better idea than giving everyone $10 or why fine.
3: I don't I totally disagree. If there if you knew when you went to the polls that someone was I don't think 10 would do it, but someone was going to give you 25 bucks or 50 bucks. That would start to be like okay, you donated your blood for the day or whatever. You worked a couple hours,
1: but we'd be talking about giving a thousand people fifty bucks. Although, what about if there were a bonus round? You could keep your fifty thousand or risk and it all on then. the com- on the comptroller race. What are you gonna do? <laughs> <laughs>
3: Why wouldn't we be better off? I mean, the problem is a $50,000 prize is inc- – they're trying to do this on the cheap. If they really want to improve turnout b- by using money, you do it the way you pay people to- for going to school. And some of those programs have been successful where you have – a it's a clear outcome that everyone is getting, Wait, not but a small.
2: You, you're saying small, small, consistent dollars rather than grand, yeah,
3: I grand think strike people- at –
2: at a million! Right. Oh my I mean, God, look, I'm, so for the, I'm so for the million dollar. The million you dollar. You are.
3: One. I hate lotteries generally because I'm so nervous about gambling. I can't handle it at all. That's. I guess I just like the sure the sure thing too much.
2: Oh, but the thing I love about lotteries is that they're life changing. That you can
3: fifty thousand dollars is not going to be life changing.
2: Maybe not for you. For a lot of people, fifty thousand dollars. Fifty thousand
3: dollars is, is not enough money to ch- change your whole life. Pretty much, no matter. Don't you who know? You don't you
2: know? Your Wait, can I just? I'm can right. I just tell? No, you. I did not. Wait, that is not. Let, I wanted.
3: Let, I, me I, I, let me tell you a
2: story. Let me tell you a little story. Tell
1: me a story of lottery and winning. I'm
2: going to tell you a story. So my, in-laws, uh, my father-in-law in laws, my father in law is New York City. Was a New York City cab driver until he retired. And at some point, they had a shady accountant. And their shady accountant like did some chicanery. And made off with some money they were supposed to pay in taxes, and they got a fifteen thousand dollars tax bill, which for my in laws might as well have been a fifteen million dollars tax bill. They had not payable, unpayable. They just didn't have it that week. My father in law plays the lottery and wins fifteen thousand dollars. Crazy. I think you're probably right. The fifty thousand dollars is a little bit on the cheap, but if it were a hundred,
1: a $1 million, it seems like a yeah, it's a great amount use of to go municipal for. resources. So I thought this was a silly idea because people should vote, damn it. But I was thinking oh, come about... come on.
3: Not on that, that's like your like argument, your Mike? No, is that's is going to get impressive. you to turnout, Mike Pascal. Well, some
1: terrible mayors might also do the trick. Uh, so I was thinking about this Hawaii primary where the incumbent governor... Abercrombie, was voted out of office by just this gigantic, enormous percent. It totally surprised people. But it was also, the primary was also held on the day that, like, the only hurricane in the history of Hawaii was supposed to hit. So I was convinced. It does appall me that in America, some of our retrograde voting rules just, I, I can't believe them, like, almost every state rights argument, I think, is just from 1871. And I don't understand. I mean, I do understand it's inertia and it is because powerful people want to keep it that way. But I don't understand single day primaries. So he started looking at the research and it turns out that all the goo goo, all the good government reformer ideas about, you know, voter registration or, or early voting, yeah, early voting, rolling voting, three weekends of voting, all that stuff.
3: Have the day off for voting. Yeah.
1: Does actually not spur turnout. What spurs turnout is excitement around election Day. right that is absolutely what Spurs turnout. And if you point to only one day and say it's only one day, that's the best way to do it. So many studies have shown, but it, it, they do say to have instant sign up. You know, you go that day and you're allowed to sign up. That's also very important. Also, it'd
3: be helpful to have the day off,
1: right? You so it would be better for it not oh, to but be on a for Tuesday. For a municipal election, oh. but to make
3: it no, well, you make it, you put it on November fourth or whatever the okay. first Tuesday in November is. We have to start with that
1: premise. Yeah. But, you know, things like a sticker that says I voted and even balloons at polling places actually cause more turnout than every sort of good government reform. And therefore, this idea, as crazy as it is, it's not the 50,000. If there was a lot of hoopla around the 50,000, then it would actually be a good idea.
2: Right. Right. I'm with that. But let's but let's also talk about other crazy ways to increase turnout besides. So synchronizing it. That's a boring way to increase turnout.
3: That's not crazy. Why it's can't crazy. you
2: vote on your phone? Why can't you do that? Why wouldn't that be a perfectly legitimate form they, of They how
3: do you, they know it's you using your phone and not someone else? They'd have to have I mean, I guess First if you First of all,
2: can pay we also we posit that, that, that we have a Republican party that would go for any of this which it clearly won't, but let's just
1: yeah, yeah, and live we're in the imagining. fantasy. imagining. Yeah.
2: Yeah, you pay for things on your phone. you, do, you, do, you verify your identity on your phone all the time and it would be you would
3: you'd have to attach it to a credit card though. you'd have
2: to you'd That's have to attach it to something that. you'd have to attach it to your national voter id yeah
3: and as you, long as you did that you well do, there is no national phone. voter id yeah, That's another missing one. piece that of would the be puzzle. Good one. but yeah sure national voter yeah. id vote by phone i like it well, another I'll one use,
2: why use, can't, use can't use why can you only vote at polling places yeah why can't you vote on your phone why can't mcdonald's be a voting place
3: Right, that's a good question. I guess that McDonald's might not want to turn over half their premises to the government to set up booths. It it wouldn't have have to be big.
2: It would just be like you're you buy you know you're standing
1: you're waiting for your fries. It's like one. One foot right there. but the you...
3: more places the more organization the more logistics right. right well
1: a McDonald's would probably have a lot of people coming in anyway but if you allowed voting at like a radio shack or an Arby's or They'd someplace that doesn't get customers, they have no one exactly there
3: anyway but you know I mean in all fairness David voting is like a election day logistics are a huge nightmare all of a sudden something has to happen just on one day that has to be done exactly right with much care mostly by volunteers it's a mess no wonder they don't also want it. Have to deal with McDonald's,
1: and there are also countries with single-day elections, like Indonesia, that proportionally have a much higher turnout than the United States. It's because the stakes are so high, and you know the people of Los Angeles, like if they voted for Garcetti or who came in second, I don't Gruul even know, or
3: something. Yeah, right. I, think I said that wrong. That's but right. It was a bad name. Yeah,
1: Gruel and Garcetti. I mean, would their lives be that much different? Sorry, Eric Garcetti, maybe not.
2: So, uh, so Pesca solution is just one exciting election day with lots of balloons. Hoopla. And Emily's solution is uh, let's all vote only on – there will be one election day. It will be in November.
3: And we have the day off. And I'd be fine with 50 bucks, 25 bucks. I'd enjoy that. I do like the stickers. I,
2: having time. now just seen a couple of dystopian um, – I saw the The Giver and I saw Divergent. Yeah. In, Recently, and they both have this, this thing where they have big ceremonies and huge amphitheaters where everything okay. happens in an amphitheater and all the citizenry gathers in an amphitheater. I'd like to have an amphitheater where we could gather and do things. That would be fun. Could we do that? Do you guys have a big mm.
1: amphitheater? No. Would Wendy Gruel be forced to fight uh, for, to the death if, with Eric Garcetti? Possibly. Then I think everyone would come.
2: Possibly. Possibly.
3: Yeah. If yes. you build an amphitheater, David, I'm sure the people will come.
2: Okay. Amphitheater is the answer. So let's go to cocktail chatter. So, Emily, when you are having a drink in your own personal amphitheater, what are you going to chatter about this week?
3: I was watching the Little League World Series final this week with my boys because they were really intrigued by Monet Davis. And I was interested that as boys, they were so... Curious and intrigued by her. And I think it's partly that she is such a cool customer. I mean, she really has like the perfect under pressure athlete demeanor, which they were really struck by when she was up at bat in the late innings and drew a walk. But then I had this whole tortured set of debates with myself about why it's a girl playing a boy's sport that is appealing to them and to us and whether in some ways there's something deflating about all of this. And Amanda Hess wrote a really good blog post kind of trying to think through some of these issues in Slate, which I recommend. She also takes to task Sports Illustrated, which has made a big deal out of a hoopla of Monet Davis, but almost never puts other girls or women on their cover and sending the message again that girls and women have to play men's sports before anybody cares about them. I'm going to watch a lot of women's tennis in the U.S. Open to compensate.
2: Pesca. In your amphitheater, what are you going to chatter about?
1: So there are a couple of strains of commentary going on that are at odds with each other. For us, for the regular people who don't run cities or countries, we're told that we're experiencing something called a work martyr complex. This is, well, this was defined by the U.S. Travel Association, which wants everyone to take a vacation, but they have a report called Overwhelmed America, Why We Don't Use Our Earned Leave. They want people to take leave, and they say that 40% say they won't take vacations because they worry about returning to a mountain of work, and 35% say no one else can do their job. And so the general idea behind this is what a, you know, ridiculous canard that is and don't be a work martyr and get over yourself. And yet when it comes to the president or when it comes to the mayor of my city, New York City, I don't know the commentary. It seems to think this is true. So yes, it is a horrible thing that uh, Eric Garner is uh, choked to death on Staten Island and Mayor de Blasio happened to be in Italy at the time. I can't tell you how many calls there were. Well, he needs to come back from Italy. Why is Eric Garner going to come back to life if you do that? I mean, this is 2014. You could certainly monitor the situation. And if protests or something had gotten out of hand, then he certainly could have come back. The same with President Obama being on Martha's Vineyard. And then, oh my God, he gave a speech about what was going on in Ferguson, which wasn't well received. And then he went and played golf. I mean, you could do anything in the world, but if you just juxtapose golf with anything serious, you get slammed. It was true of Bush. It's true of Obama. And it's just not fair. Again, it's 2014. team. The president, no president is going to be jetting into an actual riot zone anyway. So there's nothing that he could see from Washington that he can't see from Martha's Vineyard. A lot of this is political opportunism, but I do think a lot of people are saying to themselves, I can't believe he went and played golf after he gave this speech. And I was thinking, so what is the, what is the Activity. What is the way he could let off steam that wouldn't have the same cultural associations as golfing? And I came up with powerlifting. If he went to the gym and just squatted 430 pounds after giving the speech, I guess people would say, well, I guess that's all right.
2: Would they show footage of that? Would they show footage of him, him powerlifting?
1: Grunting, the veins popping out of his forehead. Did they
2: show footage of him golfing? I don't, I've never understood why it was that golfing is the one presidential activity that there are always photographs of. They never show the president... Doing other things they don't show him like like on the elliptical
1: <laughs> they did rem- remember they got that footage from him working out in the gym. It was a huge cause celeb who was the who was the guy from the state department who was a power lifter? Uh, what was his name? He looked like a power lifter. He was like assistant secretary. Oh, uh, Richard Armitage. Yes, Richard Armitage. I just Armitage. guessed
2: because he had that shaved head.
1: That's right. He was an actual power... powerlifting's is a weird thing. It's one of the few things that actually means you're really healthy and powerful, and let, yet you look, you just take the shape of an actual ball of marble, like a... Or a cannonball. You don't look that healthy, but it actually is healthy until your knees actually explode. Are you
2: a powerlifter, Mike?
1: I'd like to be, but I'm not. No, I'm not good enough. Huh. Also, you've got to grunt a lot and own a belt.
2: You're, power, you you're a power part. talker.
3: You could grunt. Yeah, seriously.
2: <laughs> you're, the, you're the Richard Armitage of, of uh, daily podcasts. <laughs> so my chatter is, because I was on vacation, I was doing some the usual uh, random reading. And one thing I read. Well, first of all, I read a novel, the new Joshua Ferris novel, where some of the main characters are named Plots. And that was exciting. But we're awesome. not going to talk about that. I emailed him and he said he did not name them after my family. So that was disappointing. But I was reading a George Washington biography by Joseph Ellis. It's called His Excellency. It's a pretty good book. It's not It's not one of the great books of the world. But it had a fantastic passage in it about Washington's economic beliefs about Washington, D.C., or about what would become Washington, D.C. Washington spent a significant amount of his life, probably a lot more of his life on this than he thought about major political issues, touting the cause of Washington, D.C. as the economic engine and capital of the United States. And so he, what he believed was that the Potomac River, the rather dinky little river that runs through Washington and out to Chesapeake Bay, was the artery into the heart of the country. The, the Potomac would be the connection out to the Ohio and from there out to the Mississippi and that, that Washington at the confluence of North and South would be the great trading hub of the United States. And he also believed that the confluence of the Anacostia and Potomac Rivers, which occurs just at the southern tip of Washington, D.C., was the greatest natural harbor in the world, and that you could put tens of thousands upon thousands of ships there, and they could be harbored there. And thus, this would be the place that, from which America would send its all its goods, its raw materials out to the world. It was probably driven by the fact that he owned a lot of real estate right on the Potomac River, and so he had a large economic interest in the success of this area. Economically, but Ellis is wonderful talking about how how even a man as great as Washington can be as horribly wrong as Washington was about the economic fortunes of Washington D.C. So those of us who are lifelong Washingtonians, Dickerson isn't here to support me in this. We can dream about what George Washington himself dreamed for our country, and be sad about it. Be sad that the factories and ports that he hoped would be here are not here today.
3: What a downer of a chatter, David. <laughs> That's but
2: the
1: right.
3: Nationals are doing well. The
2: Nats are okay. Yeah. 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 And the, the uh, Washington football team season is about to start, so it's okay. The GabFest was produced today by Mike Volo. Our intern is Max Tawny. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. Our show page is slate.com slash GabFest, has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. You should check our Twitter feed at slategabfest for tweets about. Lots of things, including probably what we talked about today. Our email address is com. Please subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes. Leave a comment and rating while you're there. If you like us commenting, rating, subscribing, these things help us an enormous amount. Like Pesca this week shot up to number two in the two. iTunes rating. Woo. Number two, thanks to his This American Life cameo not a cameo it was bigger than a cameo it was a a, segment a segment you were best supporting actor on this american life this week that's right are you still up at number two pesca
1: we got bumped by a podcast that has one episode and as i always say on the gist until you have two episodes you're not a podcast you're an audio version of an annual report
2: that is well said that's well said that's why i say
1: it on the gist (laughs) for emily bazelon and mike pesca host
2: of the gist with mike pesca a podcast that you should be subscribing to i'm david Plotz. Next week, Dickerson will be back, and we're also going to have a very special guest, Dan Carlin of Hardcore History, one of my favorite podcasts.